We are starting, though, with an announcement made earlier today about BC Parks. Everyone should feel encouraged and supported to access and enjoy parks, regardless of their ability or identity. That's why today is such an exciting and special day. That uh, just part of the announcement, more funding to make parks more inclusive and more accessible. Joining us to talk more about this is Chris Ludwig with the BC, the president of the BC Mountaineering Club. Chris, thanks so much for being here today. Good afternoon, Jill. I'm actually retired to uh, past president now. Okay, all right. That's a that's a, that's a milestone. So we don't want to gloss is, over that <laughs> for sure. Uh, past president, uh, you have uh, I know a lot of experience with this. When we're talking about inclusion and accessibility at parks, where do you see uh, kind of room for improvement? Well, I see a lot of great initiatives and in thinking from the ministry and partnerships with uh, other nonprofits. Uh, in terms of the front country, um, uh, where I'm disappointed as obviously a backcountry user and an advocate of backcountry uh, opportunities and uh, inclusivity is a complete abandonment in this of the backcountry. And as all of the funding announcement has been associated with near urban centers, and um, and yes, you know that's really important. As I said, but inclusivity, in essence, the backcountry user is also a minority user group, uh, and um, to you know focus on yes, it is easier to the lower hanging fruits uh, to say to focus on the local parks and ones that are transit accessible. If we want to lower the barrier of entry to people, especially financially, um, and this is one that the uh, ministry has finally acknowledged as being a significant uh, barrier to inclusivity is the financial barrier, uh, especially if you're new uh, to the province uh, or you're, you don't have to say disabilities or those are, you know, financial barriers become a huge part of that. And so then transportation, you know, so having better bus uh, options, which also improves uh, carbon emissions. But unfortunately, the ministry is investing exclusively in front country and also in lately also large RV parks as well for huge motorhomes and has not built any new trails, has not improved transit to the major trailheads outside of the urban area. So that's a huge wide spot on the on part of the ministry. Uh, so I wish that it was a more uh, a broad, their definition of inclusion was to include all user groups and not just the ones in the urban areas. Right. And it even says in their release today saying that budget 2023 provides $3.6 million over three years to continue the upgrade of facilities, things such as washrooms, parking lots and trails to natural features to an accessible standard. And then it says it does say in parks near urban centers. So so are you saying that you, you would like to see that expanded? That's correct. I mean, for instance, in the local mountains like in Cypress Bowl and Seymour, there is no public transit and so as a result you end up having to purchase a lift ticket and then in order to actually access those uh, be access those parks um, and drive a vehicle up so I think to truly reduce the barrier of entry is you know, getting away from you know single-use vehicles and uh, allowing you know greater public access to to say those parks and those aren't really I wouldn't say I mean those are relatively urban parks uh, the North Shore Mountains but yet nevertheless we have not extended you know these inclusivity initiatives to even as far as the North Shore Mountains. And it's an interesting point. Do you, do you think it's possible, though, to make all parks and all areas accessible? No, not, not, it's going to be a very, very long time uh, just because the province is so vast and we have such, you know, enormous amount of parklands and, and limited resources 
Um, my concern is, and again, this is something the parliamentary secretary said to me. I mean, she quoted me. I said, why aren't you investing in any new trails? And they, because they haven't built any in the last number of new years in terms of uh, backcountry. And she said, well, why would we invest in something that has benefits so few uh, when we can invest in front country infrastructure and benefits so many, but the argument is very weak because the, the economic benefits and also the health benefits to back the enormous number of hikers who have all sorts of uh, diversity and also barriers uh, is, is enormous. And, of course, you know, the health benefits and the economic benefits to the community. So I, I think it's a huge blind spot and a huge missed opportunity. Uh, what about things such as parking lots? And they talk a bit about parking lots in this particular release. Uh, I know that Rath Trevor Park in on the island was singled out, saying that there the the parking lot has been paved. Uh, says that uh, one section of the trail there has been upgraded to improve access. There's a, an accessible playground that's been put in place with a, a recycled rubber surface. So what about things like that? Well, they're fantastic and essential, um, especially they, I acknowledge that uh, a lot of people simply don't have the mobility uh, necessary to be going into the backcountry. So that obviously that's a hugely desirable investment uh, is, is those front country. Uh, however, the big thing is we also need, you know, you need more opportunities because in order to include people in things, you have to have things to include them in. So if you have a limited number of parks, and places to go, and that stays the same over many, many years, and we have an increasing population. Uh, in essence, you are losing opportunity just as a, over time, just through growth and not investing in added opportunity. So, yes, that's fantastic, um, you know, in terms of, of getting people that normally would, would have physical or, or, or even mental health barriers to getting into places like that. Um, but we need more of them and also more diversity, not just front country, but also back country. So, again, my concern is that all of our energy from the ministry has been put into either front country or the large-scale commercial developments where you spend $115 you know, to ride a lift ticket up. And that's, in essence, that's making the back country more exclusive and less inclusive. And that's something I don't want to see. Uh, the release also talks about a shift and shifting to gender-neutral universal facilities wherever feasible in parks. Are there enough facilities and washrooms at this point, do you think? Well, it, in some places, yes, in some places, no. One thing I know, certainly in back countries, we're desperately short of, 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 of outhouses in, in wilderness areas, and, and human waste management is a huge problem. So, yes, I mean, we're, we're way behind on that. So, absolutely, I agree with investing in more, in more washrooms in both front and back countries. So that's a, a great initiative. All right. Anything else stick out to you, Chris, as far as, uh, and again, I know this announcement is, is, it doesn't have a ton of detail. It also talks about things like supporting partnerships, programs for equipment and increased storytelling and such. It's difficult to put a dollar figure on that and, and figure out exactly what that means. But is there anything else that sticks out to you? Uh, maybe that, that is a good thing coming to parks or that, again, is perhaps being missed? Well, I did see a great initiative, which is where they had partnered with a couple of, of, of uh, nonprofits to basically they gave them some equipment and then you could go to those nonprofits to gain equipment. Again, that's the big barrier of entry often to outdoor recreation uh, is, is, is often the equipment and the training as well. And they have invested in public education. 
So reducing the barrier of entry to the outdoors involves freer and less expensive training and, and, and access to less expensive or, or subsidized or free equipment. And they have started that. They haven't extended that to, say, hiking or skiing. I've noticed it's, it's sort of to trail running and mountain biking, but that's a great initiative. Um, so that was nice to see. Um, but really, I think, and also, if we can find a way to maybe lessen our reliance on the, 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 the automobile and put in more transit options, and it's a real low-hanging fruit just around the greater Vancouver area that's being missed that we could, we could do to reduce our carbon footprint and get more people out there and get all those cars off those mountain roads and out of the parking lots. Um, so, and there's been some significant resistance to that, unfortunately. Right. And we've seen that, haven't we, as well, even with bringing in things like the reservation system for some parking lots and parking spaces? Well, Day Pass, in essence, has once again uh, <laughs> made things, it took away access from, we've built new, no new trails and we put Day Pass on top of it, which has, in essence, reduced capacity and reduced opportunities. So, it's 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 unfortunate that I do see a kind of a two-tiered system approach to front and back country, and I wish that these wonderful initiatives and the philosophy being applied to the front country was also applied to the back country, which it's not. And I don't understand <clears throat> to me why the ministry consistently treats the minority, uh, relatively huge minority group that's using the back country as sort of a second-class citizen as far as a user group when they're not. We're, we should all be in this together. We're all just trying to enjoy the outdoor spaces. And one more thought I had is the national parks now have a prescription system where if, you know, a park pass prescription system where the, the a doctor can prescribe a park pass. Um, you know, we don't have such a program for you know, sort of, of support for those with disabilities uh, or health problems. Um, and that might mean something you can see expanded to the uh, provincial system as well. No, it's a good, interesting idea. Certainly something to look at. Chris, we will leave it there for today, but thank you so much for being here to talk more about this. Thank you, Jill. Have a great day. You too. It's time to check in with Claire Newell, as we do every Wednesday afternoon. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. I'm going to let you tell me what you want to talk about first because there's lots going on in travel at the moment. (laughs) There is so much going on. We talked to the NDP, the MP, who brought forward that bill earlier this week trying to deal with the air passenger complaints, saying he wanted to close some of the loopholes. What are your thoughts on the number of complaints and this, this push that we're seeing as far as changing the rules? Well, it's been so interesting to watch. Of course, there's this huge backlog of complaints, and I would have loved to have been on that call or just listening. I'm so sorry I missed it with the NDP transport critic because um, he brought forward some really, really good points. So for those who haven't been following this, the um, current system for making a complaint against an airline is super cumbersome, and it's really like it's all sorts of red tape. You have to do it online. Right now, the backlog sits at about 42,000 cases, and it's taking about a year and a half to process the ones that are just coming in. Like, that's insane. And I know that that's not going to be forever. The reality is, is that when summer um, travel started and people really started to go, we saw the chaos that it kind of... Um, resulted. People lost bags. They The flights were delayed and cancelled. They ran into all sorts of situations where people were sitting on the tarmac and it was it was a real chaotic mess. And then again at winter break we had so much chaos with the weather and then the sunwing situation where they couldn't fly because they couldn't get the pilots, um, the foreign pilots, to fulfill their schedule that they built. So 
There was all sorts of issues. And because of that, it's really, I've never seen so many complaints. They're saying that it tripled in a year. I would guess that number or, or even more just because of the situation. I think moving forward, we're going to see less. But there's been this commitment from the transport minister that they're going to spend almost $76 million to clear up the backlog. But that's by hiring this workforce of about 200 more employees. So, you know, and then uh, my worry, Jill, is they're going to hire all these employees, but the backlog will be cleared and things hopefully won't be nearly as bad moving forward. What do you do with those employees? Right. Mm, yeah. So um, yeah. the, the biggest loophole and you asked that question as well. I know I went off on a tangent there, but the biggest loophole that there um, that's there at the moment is that airlines can cite safety related issues as a reason for flight cancellations and then skirt compensating passengers. And hopefully that will be be dealt with. I, I mean, I guess I'm just going to brainstorm with you a little bit here, but there's been a couple of different uh, programs that I've seen over the last few months that I think are amazing. And I'd love to see that 76 million spent more. Yes, on some on, um, on, on people to clear the backlog because it is so manual right now. But I would love to see it so that we get a long-term solution that is more streamlined using technology. And, and just an example, I know Sunwing, people are going to say, oh, December was so awful. But during that December chaos, for the very first time, I saw a system where passengers could enter their name and their booking number and then choose their options. Like, for just for example, jail. $500 full refund or a $700 future travel credit. Boom, it was done. I'd hmm. never seen that before. Another program that I've, I've also come across in the last six months is my new, my insurance policy. So I have an annual package insurance plan that doesn't have medical because I don't need it. I've got it on a couple of other, uh, on a couple of other ways, but it's this annual plan that I have. I load every flight and my family's names, whoever's on that particular flight. Like I have th the whole year plant in this system and my account is registered and all flights are tracked. So after a two hour delay that I had this over the winter break, I had money directly into my account. If the delay had gone on longer, it would have automatically gone into my account. So surely there's a way every, every flight has the, they, they know their manifest. Those names are exactly as they appear on documentation. They know how it was paid for. And like, I just, there's got to be a solution that if in fact there is a flight that has a delay, it would, you know, time that delay automatically. And then, uh, if you would be able to cite the reason for the, the delay, was it within their control? Like, is it an actual valid reason? And if it is, boom, then it becomes a flight that everyone is compensated on automatically. I mean, anyway, I'm just trying to solve the world's problems here, Jill. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense uh, for sure. So I know we will all uh, keep watching that and see what happens. So we've got some yeah. other stories to get to as well. And uh, anybody needing Nexus is going to be very happy that we're seeing it come back. Yeah, so this news came just in the past day or so, and it was super exciting to hear. They said that um, the program should be fully ramped back up within the next five weeks. So anyone who's been thinking about applying, and I've had a lot of people email me about this, do it. I would absolutely do it. You do it all online, and then you will be uh, told where to get appointments. But what's nice is that the enrollment centers will start to reopen for those sit-down interviews that you have to do. Halifax and Winnipeg will get their airport 
locations open first on March 27th, and then it's a staggered reopening. Vancouver gets their reopening date on April 3rd, which is not that long from now. And then it would be followed by Calgary and Edmonton on April 12th, Montreal April 17th, and then finally on April 24th, which is kind of when they'll all be open, we'll see Toronto and Ottawa. So that'll clear up that backlog. It's really great news for anyone who's sitting waiting to, to be interviewed. Oh, absolutely. I went uh, to the States on uh, Sunday and there was a huge lineup at the border and I zipped through with Nexus and it, I thought, oh, it would be awful if you had Nexus or you were waiting for it or for whatever reason it had expired. So uh, very good news for anybody who is waiting for that. Yeah, I still say even in the emails where should I get it? Should I not? I say it's the best $50 for five years to avoid lineups that you will ever spend at border crossings and customs going in and out of the states, flights or land borders. Absolutely. All right. So that is some good news. Not great news if you are planning to fly through London Heathrow over Easter. Yeah, so we should watch this because uh, more than 1,400 Heathrow airport security guards are planning a 10-day strike. And they're, what it's planned for, if it goes ahead, we're not 100% sure, but this is the, the, what they're earmarked for if things don't um, resolve themselves, would be March the 31st through until April 9th. And that falls right over Easter. And it's a really, really busy time, uh, especially in the UK. People often just take long, you know, that long weekend and get out. So we just have to uh, watch that if you've got a flight, especially, you know, we have a nonstop flight from Vancouver on British Airways into London Heathrow into Terminal 5. And that would be affected. There could be delays and things. They, I mean, London Heathrow is making sure that they've got contingency plans in place to keep the airport operating. But what you could run into is some some delays and you know being held on the aircraft until they can help. And uh, we'll stay in that region, kind of that part of the world. And France also dealing with strikes. I mean, that's nothing new yeah. for France, but uh, these strikes are causing a lot of problems. They are delays and cancellations, and it's set to end on tomorrow. So we'll be watching to see whether that happens. But French aviation authorities have basically said it'd be, you know, they're trying to reduce flight schedules into Charles de Gaulle and the other airports. Orly is another one. Um, they're, you know, they, they intend to operate 95% of the flights during this four-day strike. Again, it ends tomorrow. But if you are flying into that region, um, your flights, again, could be delayed because of this. There may be some cancellations, hopefully not on those big long hauls that are flying like Air, Air France nonstop from Vancouver. But also, if you're going on the Eurostar, it also might have some, some because of the labor issues, might have some cancellations or delays. All right. So good to keep that in mind uh, for international travel. Also seeing uh, some cuts uh, when it comes to flights if uh, you are flying on Delta Airlines. Oh, this is not great news. It's not the first airline. You and I chatted about that. First, we saw Lufthansa cut 30,000 flights from their the schedule that they had intended on actually using. And so that was a huge number. And then American Airlines, uh, within days of Lufthansa's announcement, announcement cut about 50,000 flights from there just June and July. And now Delta, they're cutting uh, 6,000 flights from their summer schedule. Um, just to give you an idea of what cuts look like, just if you're saying, you know, a cut in June, it's 1,952 flights in June for Delta Airlines, but that represents over, well, almost 260,000 seats 
eliminated. So, mm-hmm. you know, like when you're talking flights, you're not getting the full scope of that flight goes daily, maybe, and it has 200 people on it. And but when you multiply the numbers out, it's really it. It all these cuts mean that it's going to be expensive for consumers if you're using like Lufthansa, American Airlines, and Delta. And and I would expect that more will come. The sooner they do it, the better. Uh, hopefully, some of those flights aren't fully booked, and they can r- accommodate people on you know, other flights that day or maybe a day before or day after, but it's never good news when you hear cuts. No, not at all. Uh, Let's get to a couple of stories. This is about artificial intelligence uh, before we get to the deals. And one of these has to do with a Canadian airport. Yeah, so I always kind of, I'm interested in this whole use of artificial intelligence. So Toronto Pearson is going to use it to optimize gate turnaround time. So what's going to happen is it will... They'll use it at 106 gates, and it'll, it's basically, it'll keep track of the aircraft turnaround performance. So when they physically are preparing an aircraft to land and then take off again, that will all be monitored using artificial intelligence, and then they'll be able to highlight any inefficiencies, plus they'll be able to provide accurate estimates of timelines to increase gate availability um, and improve on-time performance. And I think to be also, they say, to be more transparent with passengers. But if you can use that, you know, sometimes when you land, you may not, you know, appreciate this unless you've been in in this situation when you land at an airport and they say, we're sorry, your gate Mm -hmm. is not available. Mm -hmm. They could turn it around faster and say, okay, that aircraft is coming in, get that to gate D instead of B. And the whole process would be much much more efficient. And that's what Toronto Pearson is hoping to do. And I, I, I think it'll work. All right. Let's get to the deals and see what you've got for us today to get people traveling. Well, just kind of breaking, uh, literally 15 minutes before I came on air, um, Mazatlan dropped price for one date only on April the 7th. It's airfare and seven nights at the Rio Emerald Bay Resort for those people who know it. It dropped to 745, taxes of 490. So that is the cheapest all-inclusive deal to a four-star uh, beachfront all-inclusive that I've seen this year. Actually, even in 2022, it's so expensive. Anytime it's around a thousand, I think it's good. So that's the best. Obviously, they had they had their issues in uh, like a, a spark of problems in early January. They have been resolved. People have been coming and going and having great times in Mazatlan since. But for, for many, they just aren't comfortable with it. That's probably why that dropped. Um, Vegas, Mara, between May 1st and May 29th, there's a few dates in there. I think there's about eight dates total where airfare and three nights hotel is 299 taxes of 246. So that's a great deal for Air and Three Nights Hotel. And then I love this. It's a bit of a last minute deal. I don't think it's that last minute, last minute but for, for cruising, it would be last minute. It's a Hawaii cruise and stay. It's 12 nights. You On April the 29th, you fly to Honolulu. It's included. Three nights hotel in Honolulu. And then you board a ship uh, and spend nine uh, nine nights on board that ship going around the Hawaiian Islands, then crossing the Pacific, walking back off the ship here in Vancouver. The air three-night hotel and nine-night cruise is $12.99 taxes 
of 398. The kicker on that though, it's a balcony cabin, which is huh. so nice. Yeah, because usually when you th- when it's so inexpensive like that, you just assume it's one of the windowless cabins inside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do because it's you know the cheapest prices is always for that inside, and then you can get an outside uh, just with a window, and then you get the balcony suite. So this happens to have a balcony, which is really really nice. <laughs> wow. All right, you've got one more for us too uh, for Ireland. Yeah, and I know lots of producers at Global have done this, and a few people that I know even at CKNW have done this uh, as well. It's uh, an Ireland self-drive trip, and we did not have it last year. Unfortunately, there were no cars. As everyone knows, it was so hard to get rental cars and super expensive. It's back. Um, So May the 9th through until October 29th of this year, airfare, seven nights accommodation. They're really nice B&Bs. You get a big Irish breakfast every day, and it also includes your car rental. And you don't have to be at any specific place at any specific time. It's go as you please. It's your self-drive through Ireland, 1349 taxes of 734 And if anyone's looked at the price to get to Europe right now, that's a really good deal for it to be, include all of that. All right. Lots of great options there. Claire, as always, thank you so much. And we will talk to you again soon. Talk to you soon, Jill. Thanks for having me. You may have seen some stories in the news talking about Ramadan and how people in this country are observing it, celebrating it. So we thought it would be good to get a bit of a Ramadan 101 and talk more about how this is taking place. Hassan Sheikh is the BC Regional Manager with Islamic Relief Canada and joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for taking some time. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you tell us a bit, uh, and again, going back to kind of the basics about this, for, for those maybe not familiar at all with what Ramadan is all about, uh, can you give us a bit of an explainer? Yeah, for sure. So pretty much Ramadan is the nine months in the Islamic lunar calendar. Muslims follow this calendar. Um, and we fast from sunrise to sunset. So fasting is considered to be an act of worship for us and is a way to cultivate the consciousness and the presence of God in our lives. So fasting, as you would know, uh, you know, with intermittent fasting and different diets, uh, fasting is both physically, um, you know, it has its physical benefits, but it also has its spiritual benefits, um, including enriching our souls, um, self-respect, uh, sorry, self-reflection, uh, and as well as charity. Um, and, you know, our kind of our mindset changes during this month and self-reflection, making the best out of ourselves, making sure our mindset and the things that we're doing, we're kind of keeping ourselves in check and making sure we're the, you know, being the most productive people during this month as well. And with the fasting from, uh, from sunup to sundown, and, and can, you, can you talk a bit about, about doing that and, and about how difficult that might be for some people? Yeah, for sure. So generally speaking, just because of the shift in the seasons, that might wear, uh, vary from 18 hours in different parts of the world, even 20. In Canada this year, we have it at about 14. But um, people do have concessions, um, you know, for various reasons, including if they're sick, if they're traveling, or if they're expecting. So um, we do have that kind of uh, leeway for people who might not be able to fast. And that's kind of where the charity part also kicks in if they're not able to fast. Um, they, they would need to kind of feed those people um, around the world who might, um, you know, need that plate of food on the table. 
Uh, right. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I was curious about that as well. And I had seen something the other day. It was addressing the issue. If you're somebody that's on medication and, and you're taking medication maybe every few hours and, and that it's not meant to, to stop you from doing that or to put your, your health in danger, but that there are some accommodations. Exactly. So, um, yeah, you would have to uh, feed a certain amount of people. And we do have resources on our website as well, islamcoastcanada.org, um, that you can find. And if, um, we have a whole kind of FAQ page about that as well. All right. I know that prayer is a big part of this as well. Can you talk a bit about what that looks like for the time of Ramadan? Yeah, for sure. So this month is uh, especially kind of special to us um, because this is when our uh, book, the Quran, was revealed to Muslims. Um, and it's kind of to revitalize our relationship with God. Um, so in terms of prayers, of course, we want to create that connection with our uh, holy book. And, you know, Muslims, we do pray five times a day. Um, and we want to keep up with those prayers, especially in this month, because of the whole aspect and the whole theme of self-reflection and getting closer to God. So while, you know, um, in this month, uh, while we are praying more, it's actually that our regular routines outside of Ramadan haven't changed quite much. Like, you know, we're going to work 9 to 5, whatever it might be, doctors, nurses, engineers, they're in their office, they're, you know, uh, maybe at construction sites, whatever it is. Um, those routines haven't changed, but we have kind of an added layer of okay, self-reflection and, and, you know, trying to get closer to God and, and all that. Uh, so is the prayer different than if you are somebody, if you're a practicing Muslim, is that something you would do at any time of year or is it that more people are doing that during Ramadan? Yeah, so it's more encouraged, you know, Ramadan is a time where, you know, uh, maybe I'm missing whatever prayers outside of Ramadan for me as a Muslim to kind of get back into the routine, press that reset button. You know, how in New Year's we have that um you know we have gold you have new um you know we want to kind of change ourselves so ramadan is a great way to do that spiritually kind of in comparison we also have late night prayers um uh in addition to our regular prayers and that's also a way for us to kind of uh, again that getting closer to god and that whole prayer element comes in um as well and so with people praying, like you said, it's not as though people are, are taking the month off from their regular routines or doing things they would do, whether it's going to work or caring for family or, or what to what people are doing. So how is it then as far as working in the five prayers, those five prayer times a day, when you might have to do it, say, find a place at your work or, or do it while you are going about what your normal routine looks like? Yeah, Um so regular, I mean, generally speaking, even for myself, I was, you know, working in an office job, whatever it might be, even before my current post at Islamic Relief, um, just able to kind of scooch during lunchtime <laughs> um, after work, quick five minutes um, on the side somewhere, uh, being able to pray. So that's our regular routine. Um, and if they're not, you know, if I'm not already doing that, hopefully Ramadan gives me an opportunity to start that um, without, you know, obviously we have a regular routine, nothing's being disturbed. Um, and outside of, you know, after our five o'clock shift ends, <laughs> we're able to, you know, go to the mosque, break our fast as a community together, because that's a huge element of Ramadan as well, um, coming together, breaking our fast. Again, our prayers are also in congregation, so it's, you know, together um, in our mosques, in our community centers and whatnot.
Right. And and you mentioned this kind of what your routine and how you do this. And when you're breaking the fast at the end of the day, when the sun has gone down, what is that like, especially for people that wouldn't be used to fasting, wouldn't be used to going all day without any food? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's refreshing. Uh, of course, you know, at the end of the day, that first sip of water in a, uh, in a long, hot day, it helps. But I, I think it's also about that reflection piece that, I, you know, kind of getting back to that. It's kind of to understand that, you know, um, we're, it's not only about stopping the food. Maybe it's about stopping, you know, the bad manners you might have, the bad habits that we might have as individuals. It's also about stopping, you know, that as well. So it kind of comes into, um, you know, making ourselves better. And that's what we do when we're breaking that fast. It's kind of us getting closer to God and, you know, praying that uh, God has accepted our fast as well. And what do you do with, with uh, when people, uh, I, maybe some of the same questions that I've been asking you today, but for, say, co-workers or people that aren't Muslim, that want to be respectful, and but also maybe want to learn a bit more about Ramadan or, or want to, 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 to not be offensive in any way, uh, do you find, are, are people reluctant to, to eat in front of somebody if they know they're fasting or, or kind of get in the way if, they, if it's prayer time or, or kind of what advice do you have, I guess, to, to non-Muslims about, about their role in this? Yeah, I think uh, the best thing is ask your coworkers <laughs> um, if you have any questions about Ramadan specifically. Um, I'm sure uh, whoever's fasting would be more, you know, more than happy to answer those questions and whatnot. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think that education element, uh, we're more, all more than happy to provide that. And should somebody feel bad, I guess, if they're, if they're eating at their desk and they know they're eating next to somebody who's fasting? I, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's definitely not an expectation. Um, we do this willingly. So, yeah. And what about joining uh, people as well? Again, if you're if you're non-Muslim, but uh, maybe you're invited or, or you, you want to kind of learn more about this, do, do you find, do people join in for that meal after sundown or how does that work? Yeah, um, we have, again, this, for example, events in our community, they're open to everyone. Um, and, you know, it's a great experience for someone who's interested, who's curious, okay, how does, you know, how does one fast for 14 hours? How does that work? Um, you know, you could definitely, uh, there's a lot of community uh, events happening, even with Islamic Relief, you could go on our website, check that out, um, with across British Columbia. But if you ever, you know, um, are curious, again, ask those same coworkers, ask those same neighbors, those same friends, um, how does this work? And, uh, if you get a, you know, an invite out of it, I think, <laughs> um, you'll be able to experience that as well. Um, what does that feel like? You know, why we do it? And what, you know, again, that whole emotional and spiritual experience, you'll definitely get a, you know, an experience of that. And Hassan, just one other question. I know I think the number is at around 8 billion people in the world are Muslim. How many people or, or do you see it growing as far as the number of people who do actually uh, observe Ramadan, this holiest month, and, and, and fast and, and pray? Uh, do you see that number? Is it, is it a growing number of people or, or what do you see happening there? Um, I mean, in terms of locally, our population from all ends, um, as British Columbians, as Canadians, even here in Surrey, for example, where I'm based out of, uh, our population is growing. So you'd kind of see that, you know, percentage-wise, that growth in our community as well. So our events 
um, you know, we've had to get bigger venues um, or we've had to do more events. So it's, it's, a nice, uh, it's nice to see that more people are, you know, fasting. Um, it's nice to see that as a community we're growing and a lot more people are, you know, not only uh, Muslims, but even other, um, you know, people, people, uh, people who don't traditionally fast, they're also indulging in this experience. So it's, it's good to see that as well. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Hassan, for joining us and uh, walking us through what this month means and what people are going to be doing. Uh, I so appreciate your time. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We are going to be talking about a very large survey, and it was done asking Canadians and specifically thousands of British Columbians how they feel about their electric vehicles, because more and more people are driving these vehicles, and they've been doing it for several years. So it felt like it was a good time to go ahead and ask people about that. It was a survey done for... BCAA. So let's find out some more of the findings in uh, this uh, survey. Sean Petipas is the BCAA Director of Corporate Purpose and Mobility Marketing. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to look at uh, specifically the BC findings, but before we get into those specifics, can you tell us a little bit more about what this survey was asking people, what information you were looking for? Absolutely. This survey reached out and talked to EV owners. It's one of the largest, it's the largest research study ever done of EV owners in Canada and in BC, and we did this in partnership with CAA. Um, what we were looking for is perceptions. What, what are you scared of? What, you know, how did it turn out once you bought your vehicle and how do you feel now? And what we learned is that there was apprehension in the beginning and a lot of that apprehension goes away once you actually own an EV. Uh, and so looking at the numbers, I, I know that it was a national survey, more than 16,000 people who owned electric vehicles, uh, more than 5,600 people here in BC. So if we look at those BC numbers, uh, like you said, people are getting kind of more comfortable getting used to to having those electric vehicles. Let's talk about charging, because I know in the past that has been a huge issue or there was that what was it range danger and people thought they might get stranded. But what are people saying about range now? You know, people did have quite concern around range anxiety and, and even battery degradation once the, once when it's cold out. But once they own their EV, those anxieties did go down. But what didn't really go down is that almost half of all EV owners continue to worry about access to public storage. Now, two-thirds of EV owners have installed something in their home so that they can charge at home. Uh, but they still need places when they're on the road or if they go on a trip uh, to find charging. And then there's still that third of, of owners who, who charge anywhere but at home. And, and there is uh, a continued problem accessing public charging. And do we know how many charge stations there are, uh, say, even in the province of B.C.? There's quite a few charge stations in the province of B.C., but I think that there's also a habit that hasn't quite developed yet. Um, this is a new technology for a lot of folks. And, you know, with our gas-powered vehicles, we're used to going to the, to the gas station, and it's, it's kind of second nature. When you get low, you fill up. But now it's, it's you know, your charge gets lower. You have to find a, a standalone station. You have to know where it is, and then you have to wait while your vehicle charges. So 
There's a lot of apps out there, uh, even on our own BCA website, uh, bca.com slash EV, you can, you can find where these charges are, but it does require a little bit of extra research. No, for sure. And, and different from a gas station, like, like you mentioned, gas station, you go fill up and you're on your way. Whereas I'm, I'm guessing people with electric vehicles, you want, hopefully you want it. And I know where this, this radio station is in the parking lot. There are a bunch of charge stations. You would prefer to have it somewhere where you're not just waiting for it. You're doing, you're either shopping or working or doing something that you would be doing anyway. Well, exactly. You know, you, you, you don't want to sit around and wait for the charge because, you know, what, like, what, like you mentioned, when you fill your, your vehicle with gas, it, you can leave right away. And I think that's why people do like having charging stations at home. Um, but it still does occur that you do need to charge on the go. Uh, and you mentioned that number seems quite high, that, that two-thirds of the owners have installed, uh, whether it's, uh, d- does it break it down that the, the actual charging stations, like you might see at a public charging stations or, or people that are doing an even longer charge, I, I know in places like Vancouver where it was okay to, to put the extension cord over the sidewalk as long as you did it in a safe manner, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's the the folks who are doing it at home. They're they're not really having you know problems within their home, but it's really once they leave their home, half of all owners do have some anxiety of where they're going to get their charge if they aren't at home. Right, that makes that makes sense. What about the confidence to go on longer trips, as far as knowing the network of chargers, or are people becoming more comfortable with doing that? You know, 36% of the owners aren't all that confident of taking long trips. And I think this goes back to that uh, confidence in finding a charger, especially if you're leaving your own community or your own neighborhood. You may not know the infrastructure as well. So it does require extra research. And there's a a large majority of EV owners who also own a gas-powered vehicle, and they'll use those for the longer trips. Which which isn't a huge surprise if there is that anxiety of finding chargers. And again, if you're on a road trip, you probably don't want to stop for a few hours if you don't have to and charge the vehicle. So I'm guessing that wasn't a huge surprise that, that people mentioned or talked about that anxiety and still had the other vehicles. Yeah, not a huge surprise at all. But what I do think, and just, you know, anecdotally talking to EV owners, we do see that the longer you own it, the more you get comfortable with it, the more the infrastructure increases across our province and, you know, and across North America, um, you, you do get more comfortable in that space. But like anything, it takes time to get used to a new way of doing things. Uh, did it matter kind of where the people were located as far as if they were in colder parts of the province or parts of the province maybe that had extended winters compared to Metro Vancouver and, and where the anxiety was there? You know, when you look right across Canada, the numbers are quite similar. There's a lot of EV owners in BC, and our sample size for our research was quite large. Um, but whether you were in, in Quebec or, or in BC, it was all about the same. And you did have, you know, uh, concerns about battery degradation uh, in weather. But in reality, once people did own these vehicles, those concerns went down dramatically. Hmm. Uh, did it ask people as well about the battery and about any concerns or, or issues about battery replacement? No, I mean, battery replacement is going to be an issue, but a lot of EV owners are new EV owners, so it's probably not top of mind. Right. Okay. Um, what else did you find as well as, uh, I, I thought it was interesting that they're, they're um, 
satisfaction rates are still pretty high. And again, their their enjoyment and anxiety, while they still had some, it did kind of, it did seem to decrease the longer they owned the vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the biggest thing that stands out is over 90%, it's actually 96% say that uh, they're really satisfied with their vehicle. And when it's time for a new one, they're going to go electric again. So satisfaction levels, once you get that vehicle home, you're, you're pretty happy with it. All right. Well, it's a very interesting research, interesting findings. Sean, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about the survey findings today. Thank you so much.